It comes from Malachi 3.16 through 4.3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Test. Fair enough. Okay, that's all right. So the prophets, human image bearers, commissioned as messengers of God to proclaim his truth, his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, but yet setting it against every form of denial of these very same things. And through the words of these prophets, we've traced the covenant faithfulness of God himself. Spanning four different periods of Israel's history from the 8th century B.C. through, or excuse me, the 9th through the 5th centuries before Christ. And each of them delivered a message that consisted of God's warnings for their disobedience, his, his pleas for their repentance, and his portraits of a coming Messiah who would be the salvation of Israel 
and all of mankind out of God's covenant faithfulness through the covenant he made with Abraham. And as all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to prepare and equip us for every good work, along the way we've asked ourselves, what is it that the minor prophets have to say to us as New Testament Christians? And so this morning we end with the last of the minor prophets to speak, Malachi. Well, while preparing the sermon and through the the inspiration of an incredibly wise and smart friend, I, I discovered a sound, a sound that's been created by modern broadcast engineers that I think approximates what the prophets might have sounded like. Let me find my way here and I'll play it for you. Technology is my friend this morning. You familiar with that sound? I think we've all heard it, right? We've we've seen them or received them on our phones. Okay, uh, thanks for coming, and uh, I'll be looking for a new job soon. <laughs> I, I'll just, I'll keep going. <clears throat> all right, we've, we've all seen him or heard him, right? We get him on our phones, we see him on the TV, you're driving up 75, you see it on the, the large board. Um, there's a lot of these emergency broadcasts for weather, for missing persons. Uh, but, but the intent behind one of them in particular, the Amber Alert, is to instantly galvanize the community to, to begin to assist in the search or recovery of a missing child. Well, when we look at the book of Malachi, right there in verse 1, what we learn is, is that his name means my messenger. That's what Malachi means. And rather than a name, I think what's inferred here is is a role that this individual is playing. You see, all of the prophets were God's messengers. They were, they were God's emergency broadcast system to his people. He issued these alerts out of a loving desire that the community of his people would be galvanized to recover and return his missing or lost wayward children. You see, Malachi is a point of transition in the whole story of the Bible. He describes Israel as it existed at the very end of Old Testament history. And after Malachi, Israel and the whole world would endure 400 years of silence from God. And so what's striking to me as we come to the end of these prophets, that for 13 weeks we've been listening to what each of them has to say to us. What's, what's striking to me in all of these messages and what should probably be a bit unsettling to you and I is, is, is what does not change in God's people. Having received these messages and these alerts, this having received this revelation of himself and a sustained sending 
of his messengers. What, what remains among the people of Israel after accusations, warnings, appeals to repentance, oracles of hope that would manifest themselves through God's covenant faithfulness? What remains after years of judgment and exile and after, in this point in the story, 150 years of having returned to Jerusalem, having rebuilt the temple, having restored their community. What endures is a people who are imagining that they are all right when they are all wrong. That should unsettle all of us. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, um, we just give you praise and thanksgiving this morning for your word that you've revealed yourself by all these messengers, that you've given us the words and the works of your son Jesus, and that we have your scriptures to guide us, and you've given us those of the Holy Spirit to guide us, Lord. We give you great thanksgiving and praise for that. So this morning, Lord, would you make us attentive to your spirit? Would you help me with technology? Would you help us all to conform our minds and our hearts? to what it is that you would have to say to us this morning. Amen. Well, there's no date or time reference given for this book of Malachi, but we can look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the other parts of the Old Testament and deduce that Malachi probably prophesied about a 100 years after the last two prophets that we heard in the previous two weeks, Haggai and Zechariah. Malachi in this book in these four chapters, he he bemoans the decline of godliness in Israel, where the very evils that Ezra and Nehemiah had set about to correct in the community still exist side by side with this external appearance of correctness. It's It's a form of godliness without power, a form of ritual without life. And perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Malachi describes an an attitude that, that can persist to this day, a mindset that considers humankind somehow superior to God, along with the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and to, and to measure him against a human standard. And for some in this world, that's a very conscious thing to be opposed to God. But for others, it's not. It's insidious. It's a recurring theme in Malachi, and it's expressed by a recurring word that shows up in this book seven times. And that word is how. How have you loved us, the people say to God in verse 2. It's where the Israelites are questioning every prophetic utterance that Malachi makes. In every single case, their response to him is... How? How do we do that? What do you mean? It's a state of mind that challenges God's statements, and and, and it's an arrogant demand that God give an accounting of himself. Tell us how we do that, God. Well, God begins his message to the people in verse 2 with the words, "I, I have loved you. But the people reply in this critical unbelief, how have you loved us? The sentiment behind their question is is this bitter complaint 
about the way the people felt that they had been treated by God. Now, mind you, this is at the end of all of these prophecies we've heard pre-exile, before the exile, right? Telling Israel, if they don't change their ways, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be carried off. And they don't change. And that's what comes to pass. And then God, in his mercy, through a Gentile national leader, makes a way for the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And they've been there 150 years. And yet they're unhappy with God. As we read on in the book, we discover that that the religion of the Israelites was, was formal and it was empty. And yet they were... They were satisfied with it. They didn't see anything wrong with it. Indeed, they considered themselves to be doing quite well, even perhaps doing God a favor by the the quantity of their religious activities. Yet God had not prospered them in their return to Jerusalem, as they thought that they had deserved. They were a relatively weak nation. They weren't particularly wealthy The covenant promises that God had made to their patriarch, Abraham, to make them a great nation and a nation through whom all of the world would be blessed, they, they're not realizing that in their minds. And so they ask, how have you loved us, God? And the implication is that if if God really did love them, that they would be powerful, they would be wealthy, they would be prosperous, they would be great. And it's a sentiment that permeated the whole culture from the religious leaders all the way down through the people. And so we see in verse 6, God speaks to the religious leaders by saying, It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. And what is their reply? How? How do we show contempt for your name, God? You see, it's the same attitude behind this question as we... As we saw in the preceding verse, you see the the clergy thought they were going beyond all of the requirements, even though they were offering deformed animals and they were serving with a bitter attitude. And to the people, Malachi says in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. And the people say, how have we wearied him? You see, the people are faulting God for his management of the world's affairs. In their economy, those who did good things, which in their mind was themselves in this case, as they were observing the world, those who did good things were suffering misfortune, while those who did evil, meaning everybody else, they were being blessed. And this was, this was not how it was meant to be. It was unjust in their opinion. And their exact words were, all who do evil and good in the, excuse me, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. And then they say, where is the God of justice? See, they wanted justice from God when they just should have been thankful that instead of the justice that they deserved, they'd actually been recipients of God's grace. And what does God say that his justice will look like? Chapter 3, verses, picking up at verse 2, he says, Who will be able to endure it when he comes? 
Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, the priests, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. At that time I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I'll speak against those who cheat employees of their wages who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see, the people considered themselves to be among the righteous when they're actually the wicked. And what's the fruit of their wickedness that God observes among his chosen people? The people that he has preserved, the people that he has led out of slavery, the people that he has led through the wilderness, the people that he has delivered to the promised land, the people to whom he has made good on every single promise he ever gave them throughout their history. What does he observe in the fruit of their lives? Adultery. Employers who cheat laborers. People who oppress widows and orphans. People who don't provide justice to the very people that they should be protecting. And it it reveals two flawed assumptions that all of humankind can make. And the first is the assumption that God himself must act justly. And all I want to point us back to is our sermon series on the book of Job, where we examine this question. And what the scriptures reveal to us is that, is that God has not ordered his creation, his universe, according to the principle of justice. At least not the form of justice that we want in the here and now. He's ordered it according to his wisdom. And so it's a flawed assumption when we think, well, God, why aren't you acting justly here? And the second flawed assumption is the assumption or the failure to understand, rather, the assumption that God doesn't care or does not intend that our manner of life is part and parcel about how he works out justice in this world. You see, we're part of his plan for manifesting mercy and justice in all of creation. We're to live justly and to love mercy. And so God admonishes the people in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, return to me and I will return to you. It was the same challenge that he had given to the people through the prophet Isaiah more than 300 years earlier. Those people didn't heed his plea. And these people respond How are we to return? They mean, they don't mean that they're ignorant of the proper stages of repentance and and they want to learn these steps so they can genuinely turn from sin and please God. That's not what they mean. They're not ignorant of those things. What they mean is, 
how can you say that we should return when we're already as close to you and as obedient as we could possibly be? What can we do that we have not already done or that we're not already doing? God tells him, he says, you've robbed me. You've robbed me in your tithes and your offerings. You're, You're neither generous toward God nor generous toward others. And the word tells us that they've been saying harsh and terrible and contemptible things about God. They've questioned his love. They've despised his name. They've defiled his sacrifices. They've attacked his sense of justice. They've questioned his commands and they've withheld their tithes. And these people and the priests have become so self-righteous that they considered their remarks and their actions to be entirely justified. They couldn't see their own slandered. What have we ever said against you? Is their astonished reply. People today who are outside of the church, outside of the covenant community of Christ, they... People, human beings, want to measure God by the standards of human justice if they don't just want to do away with God entirely. The question of God's justice and human suffering is is perhaps the greatest question that, that keeps many people from placing their trust in God and what he's done for all of humankind through his son, Jesus Christ. But inside the church, we also, we need to maintain our own sense of awareness and a sense of humility to ensure that that we also don't allow ourselves to, to arrive in a place where we're holding God to a standard that we've set for him. You see, we've, we've got to continually cultivate our awareness and our attentiveness to God's messenger to us. The Holy Spirit and, and, and the ways in which we attempt to wriggle out of the uncomfortable things about our heart and our character that the Holy Spirit brings to mind. You see, we're always at risk of desensitizing ourselves to that amber alert. I mean, I don't know about you, but when they come on my phone, that I just hit silent and swipe away the notification. I don't spend any time looking at it. It, it's just become a glanging gong nuisance, perhaps. We've got to not allow ourselves to be desensitized to those alerts that we receive to God. You see, the most comfortable place for you and me, friends, is to, is to operate above this waterline of awareness. The things that we're conscious of, that's our comfortable place. And the deeper work of faith is to get to the heart level of our desires, the things that lurk below that waterline, the subconscious things out of which are our true desires and out of which our words and our actions and our true heart motives flow. That's the deeper work of faith that God is calling us to every moment of every day of our lives. You see, like, like these Israelites that we read about in this story, the, you and I are, we're, we're far too capable of being confident in our 
knowledge of the truth and, and responding to that knowledge mechanically and technically and and yet the inwardness of our nature, the inwardness of our human nature can drive us to a place of contradicting the will of God. And far most of the time we may not be conscious of it because I think if we were, we wouldn't do it. To translate it into the language of the New Testament, Christians are, are perennially at risk of, of having a form of godliness and yet denying the power of the Holy Spirit. In the second of his pastoral letters to his protege Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes, I'm reading from uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, he says, You should know this, Timothy, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And then he tells Timothy, stay away from people like that. You see, Paul's not writing in this passage to Timothy about the secular world. He's describing the morality of those in the church who are Christians in name only. And for us as a church-going people, as I say, it, it's, it's perilously easy to, to slip over time into this subconscious posture of, of self-righteousness. You see, the Israelites in Malachi's day, they don't see themselves as irreligious. On the contrary, they, they think of themselves as people whom God must approve of because of who they are and what they do. So it's, it's worthy to look at God's reply to them first, right? At the beginning, he says, I've loved you. He's loved us. And then he goes on in, in verses 2 through 5 of the first chapter. He makes a striking comparison between Jacob and Esau and Judah and Edom. Jacob and Esau, two people, brothers, right? Right? We read in the Bible story that Esau is, um, or excuse me, Jacob is the second born, Esau is the first born, so he's the, he has the birthright of the blessing of his father to inherit all of the, the blessings of the family promised to his line. And Jacob cheats Esau out of his, um, inheritance, or Esau rather sells it to his brother. And he tricks, and then his, the father blesses Jacob, right? And so God, in, in faithfulness, follows through with the promise. And so God continues to bless Jacob, someone completely unworthy of the promise. And Esau is cursed. 
And God makes this comparison to remind the self-righteous critical citizens of Jerusalem of, of the unmerited love of God. You see, because Jacob goes on to become Israel and the nation of Judah, and Esau goes on to become Edom. The Edomites throughout the scriptures are constantly opposed to God's people. And so God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But God shows them that in all these things, he's, he's loved them and he's continuing to work with them in order that they might be a precious and holy people. Yet what has happened to Edom? They've, they've perished. And so God's making this point that left to ourselves, we're, we have no hope. Our hope has to reside in him. I, I probably come off to you as negative about humankind. And I gotta be honest with you, I am, cause I am one. But I don't offer this as a message to demoralize you. I, I, we need to see that our hope is in the person and the works and the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Our hope can't be in anything else. It can't be in our Careers. It can't be in our family relationships. It can't be in our educational accomplishments. It can't be in our bank account. All of those things make a terrible Jesus. My wife and I, this past week, have been watching a show on, on Apple TV called The Morning Show. It's brilliant. I have to warn you that I think part of the criteria for casting people was to um, run them through the range of their ability to use a four-letter expletive that begins with the letter F very emphatically. If you're sensitive to that word, um, you might have to, to sit it out, but it, it's a brilliant show. But one of the characters, the head of the news division, makes a statement as he's, he's trying to encourage the, the anchor to, to do something that holds people morally accountable. And he says, the thing about human nature is it's surprising universal and it's universally disappointing. And I'm reminded of, of a conversation, I think it was between Billy Graham and, and uh, the German Chancellor Conrad Adenauer at the end of World War II. They're, they're looking over the destruction of major cities of the former... Nazi Germany, and, and the German chancellor turns to him and says, you know, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for mankind. So the good news for you and I, brothers and sisters, in, in this message, this example of a people who didn't get it, the good news for you and I is that, is that we're bound to God in Christ and by the Spirit when we, when we place our trust in the words and the works of Jesus Christ. But God tells us that there's something that we must continually attend to. We must know our hearts. And when we find ourselves lamenting to God, how have you loved us? And it's okay. God's big enough to handle our lament. God wants us to bear our raw feelings, to bring to him our disappointments, even our anger with him. He's big enough. 
But he also wants us to remember and to return and to confess the greatness of God's love for us. And then determined to to be a mirror of his grace rather than a mirror of the culture in which we live. And then to walk that out in the manner of our lives. That's what we mean when we say, live justly, love mercy. And as I said earlier, Malachi is a point of transition in this story. Not only does it come at the, it's the end of the Old Testament revelation, but it's, it anticipates the New Testament. So we look at verse one in chapter three, the messenger says, look, I'm sending my, or God says through Malachi, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This was the text that the disciples, Peter, James, and John were thinking of when, when having just witnessed the transfigured Jesus, on the top of a mountain, having a conversation with the very long past and dead prophets, Moses and Elijah. When they say to him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They're referring to this text, Malachi 3.1. He will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And Jesus' reply was to reference John the Baptist, who we heard about in our call to worship this morning. He says, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah, the prophet, has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. See, brothers and sisters, we've received all of the writings of the prophets. We've received the greatest prophet, the greater Moses, the prophet, capital P, Jesus Christ. All prophecy points to Jesus. And so how how did the people respond to God's message through his messenger Malachi? How did some of the people respond Well, as we heard this morning in our scripture reading, starting in chapter 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name. You see, there were reverent and wise people among the Israelites. There were those who who heard the message, who paid attention to God's messenger. They were there were those who feared God and always thought about the honor of his name. They truly sought to hear what God was saying to them. They were those who had a, a sober and right view of themselves. And they endeavored to walk in obedience. To God's command. And what did they do? They, they repented and they believed in the gospel. And in their day, how they did that was to write this scroll of remembrance. We see this. It says in verses 17 and 18, God listened. He heard their words. He saw their hearts. He listened. And God reminded them of the faithful, of his faithfulness to the covenant he'd made with Abraham. 
He says, they will be my people. They will be my special treasure. You see, friends, when we listen to God, when we take what God says to us to heart, we're his people. We're his special treasure. Well, in the last, in the first five verses of chapter four, we see that, that God says he's coming. And we needn't concern ourselves about when. Paul refers to Timothy at the time he said, in these last days, we're in these last days. We don't need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. We know he is. And he tells us that we can't figure it out, that we shouldn't worry about that. We should focus on the work that he's been given to us to go and make disciples of all people and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. Because God says he's coming. But when he comes, his, his judgment, he says, will separate the righteous from the wicked. He'll, he'll separate those who fear and honor and serve God He'll separate them to stand in an eternal congregation where righteousness will be as ubiquitous as the sunshine, the scripture tells us. And those who in their arrogance and and selfishness and self-righteousness, they don't fear God, they don't honor his name, they don't live justly and love mercy, the scripture tells us that they'll be consumed by righteous judgment. I don't know what that really looks like. But I don't think any of us want to experience that. The final word of the Old Testament ends with an encouragement to God's people, his chosen people, his special treasure. He he tells them to, to remember to obey the law of Moses, his servant, all the decrees, all the regulations that I, he gave him at Mount Sinai. God says, I've, I've, I've told you what you need to do to be my people. I told you what it is that defines you as my people, not, not just how you live out your life, how you live justly and love mercy, but the attitude of your heart in it. And he says he's sending the prophet Elijah. And he did. So may we be a people whose, whose manner of life is walked out as a living scroll of remembrance. A life motivated by reverence and awe for God and a, an attentiveness to the leading of his spirit. And a life poured out as a sacrifice for others as we always think about the honor of God's name. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, Lord of hosts, God Almighty, we thank you, God, that that we in this 21st century have, have the full revelation of you through your scriptures. The writings of the prophets, the writings of the evangelists, the writings of the apostles, your revelation 
as the creator of everything seen and unseen to those whom you created and those whom you've called to join you in the stewardship of this creation. So God, we we thank you that you're mighty to save, that you save us from ourselves, that you save us from the evils of sin and death, that we don't have to rely on ourselves, God, that you've done the work for us in your son Jesus, and that all you ask us to do is to look at who you say you are, to see what it is that you've done for us already and to hold fast to the promises of what you proclaim you will do in the future. Because God, your entire story shows us that while our hearts are prone to wander and we're a people who struggle to stay faithful to the promises that we make, that you're a God who has fulfilled every promise. And so, Father, we trust you. And we pray, God, that we can continue to abide in the vine that is your son, Jesus Christ, that we who abide in him are your special people, your special treasure. And and I pray, Lord, that we would just grow in our sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, that we would love you with all of our hearts and that we would see ourselves correctly and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves and that as your church that we could reflect your heart and your character and be the hands and feet of Christ in this broken world. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.